or a phone or a tablet or Kindle or whatever else you look up these days. And as you found that, let me just lead us in prayer. Father God, we thank you for the privilege of being gathered here this evening, for the joy of being able to sing your praise and to focus our minds on Jesus, our Messiah, to remember that your mercy is more, Father God, that you are willing to send Jesus uh, to take our place on the cross, to offer us forgiveness of our sins. And so we thank you for that sacrifice, and Lord, we thank you for the privilege of being able to gather around the Lord's table later on in our service to remember that in particular. But Lord, as we turn to your word here, we come to a passage that speaks very clearly of the human heart and the condition of it. So we pray, Father God, that you would teach us through these words this evening. We pray that we would hear your voice. We ask that you would make our hearts receptive and responsive to your word. We ask that you would train our eyes and focus them on Christ. Would you teach our hands and our feet to move in fresh obedience according to the dictates of your word. Work now in these moments, we pray, as your word is read and proclaimed in all our hearts for your glory. And in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 2 Samuel 24, the very last Uh, message and our journey looking for a king through 1 and 2 Samuel. This is God's word. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of my Lord the King see it. But why does my Lord the King want to do such a thing? The King's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders. So they left the presence of the King to enroll the fighting men of Israel. After crossing the Jordan, they camped near Aroa, south of the town in the gorge, and then went through Gad and on to Jazer. They went to Gilead and on the region of Tahan, Hodsi, and on to Danjan, and around toward Sidon. Then they went toward the fortress of Tyre and all the towns of the Hivites and Canaanites. Finally, they went on to Beersheba and the Negev of Judah. After they had gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Joab reported the number of the fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword, and in Judah, 500,000. David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, O Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad, the prophet David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come upon you three years of famine in your land? Or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you? Or three days of plague in your land? Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, 
I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into the hands of men. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated. And 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord was grieved because of the calamity and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall upon me and my family. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Aruna the looked and saw the king and his men coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Aruna said, Why, who, why has my Lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Aruna said to David, let the Lord, the king, take whatever pleases him and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering. Here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. O king, Aruna gives all this to the king. Aruna also said to him, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Aruna, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered prayer in behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. Amen. This is God's word. Don't you just hate it when you bite into an apple and discover a worm has been there? It's horrible. The apple is ruined. I discovered something quite amazing recently, though. I always thought that the worm burrowed into the apple from the outside. But it turns out that scientists have discovered that the worm comes from inside. So how does it get there? Very simple, according to the scientists that have investigated and examined and paid attention to this. An insect, an apple maggot fly, uh, finds herself a sweet-smelling apple that is ripening and lands on it. And using a small, sharp, hollow tube on the underside of her body, the fly stabs a small hole in the fruit. Then she releases her eggs, which slide down that hollow tube into the apple. And sometime later... The worm hatches in the heart of the apple and eats its way to the outside. That got me to thinking, not about apples and why it's better not to eat apples, but sin, sin like the worm begins in the heart and it works its way out through a person's thoughts, their words and their actions. We see this in David's life We've seen it a few times now as we've journeyed through looking at First and Second Samuel, and we see it right here again at the end of David's life. It appears we never outgrow sin. Nobody, no matter how old, how wise, how respected, is immune to sin. And here in 2 Samuel 24, we find David's great sin. 
Now you might want to argue with me that David's great sin was with Bathsheba, and you may well have a point there, but I think there's an overriding truth found here in this chapter that shows us the human heart, and it is sinful. No matter how mature you are, how far you've come walking along the road with the Lord, there is still a tendency to sin. That is why the hymn writer got it absolutely spot on when he wrote the words, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. At the end of this incredible book, we are reminded of the sinful nature of humanity and the great mercy of our glorious Lord. The people have been looking for a king, and despite some strong characters and characteristics, we're shown here at the end that every human heart is sinful, and the king we are looking for is the one to come who will forgive our sin and restore our relationship with God. We are to look to Jesus. As we think on David's great sin here, let's see the human heart in its various conditions and stages. Firstly, we see a stubborn heart. It says, again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. The Lord is angry. We're not told the details of the Lord's anger, but the nation proved to be rebellious numerous times during David's reign. We do know that the Lord's anger is never misplaced. We're told, too, that in his anger, he incited, he moved David to take a census And we enter the very muddy waters of the mystery of God here and of the sovereignty of God. We know that God cannot tempt us to sin, and that is what David is about to do. So how do we explain all of this? Well, we'll ask some other theologians in the room, perhaps. No, we know the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 21 names Satan as the one who incites David to sin and take this census. So in this sin, Satan was used by the Lord as the agent of his chastisement. God used Satan to move David to do what was already in David's heart. God is not and cannot be the author of sin. And if you go through the scriptures, you'll see that again and again. Habakkuk, one of my favorite uh, of the minor prophets, is that great story where uh, where Habakkuk prays for God's justice to come and God actually uses the wicked of the land to come in and to deal with the sin of his people before later dealing with that sinful people himself. We've seen it in Revelation recently as the beast destroys the great harlot. God was angry with his people here, and he allowed Satan to tempt David, and David in his anger sinned by numbering the people. His stubborn, sinful heart is seen. David immediately goes to Joab. He goes to the commanders of the army. He orders them, verse 2, to go throughout uh, the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and to enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. Now, we ought to be clear, there's nothing wrong with taking a note of the people, nothing wrong with numbering the people. Moses was told to do that on at least two occasions and did so without any repercussions at all. Apparently, the problem here was with David's David's numbering was his motive. Maybe David was getting ready to go to war with an unsuspecting neighbor. It was the fighting men he asked for a record of, not of all the people. 
Maybe he wanted to see how many people he had under his command so that he could strut around in his pride a little bit. And you know, we're not that much different. Pride often makes us want to count in terms of numbers. With politicians, how large is your constituency? With pastors, sad to say sometimes. You know, the question I get asked uh, so often uh, is, how's your church doing? How many members have you got? That's the wrong question to ask a pastor. Uh, the question is, how are your people growing? Uh, are they growing in Christ? Are they growing in grace? Are they growing in knowledge and wisdom? But some pastors love to say, my church is this large. With business owners, it's how large your company is. With so many of a younger generation, it's how many followers, uh, how many likes do I get on my Instagram or my Facebook or whatever it happens to be. The fact is, David is acting in pride, and pride is always the root of our sin. It was the root of the very first sin in Genesis chapter 3. Pride says, I know better than God, and I can do as I please. Beware of your pride, my friends, because it will never lead you to the Lord. It will only lead you further away from him. Our pride separates us from God and from others. This attitude of David's is borne out in Joab's response, for he is against the census. Look at his reply in verse 3. He says, may the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over. May the eyes of my Lord the king see it. But why? But why does my Lord the king want to do such a thing? Joab senses that the king was motivated by pride, that he wanted to magnify his own achievements rather than to glorify the Lord. And so he asks the king why he feels the need to do it. And that's good advice. But kings always prevail over generals, over uh, commanders. And so David's order stood. David sinned in the face of good advice. A lot of time we get into trouble because we will not stop to listen to the good advice of others. People who love us will warn us that we are headed down the wrong road, but we plow ahead anyway. The Word of God warns us, but we carry on in the face of what God has to say about the matter. Actions like that can only ever end in disaster. Perhaps you heard the story of the two pastors who were frantically waving their arms next to a sign on the road that said, the end is near, turn back. A couple of cars drove by and unflatteringly gestured to the pastors and yelled something about them being religious wackos as they sped on by. After the sound of a crash, one pastor looked to the other and said, maybe we should have just written danger, bridge out. Some of you will get that one afterwards. Just because something doesn't seem dangerous doesn't mean it, is, it isn't dangerous. Sometimes when it comes to decisions in our lives, we roll through all of those signs that are crying out, stop to us, when we should stop and turn around. David should have listened to Joab, but all we see is his stubborn heart. Joab may have disagreed, but he carried out his responsibilities. He questioned the king, but he didn't rebel against him. So the captain of the host became involved in this sin because of David's foolish decision. It's clear our actions affect other people. 
beginning in the remote areas, uh, the other side of the Jordan, they uh, covered the entire land as directed. Uh, if you're one of these geeks that likes to look at the geography of the places that are named, you'll discover that they traveled in a counterclockwise direction. Verse 8 tells us that they came back to Jerusalem at the end of uh, nine months and 20 days. And Joab reports back how many men, how many fighting men uh, they counted. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword. And in Judah, 500,000. If you look at the parallel account in First Chronicles, we discover that Joab missed some out because he was actually appalled at what he was doing. First Chronicles 21.6 says, But Joab did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering because the king's command was repulsive to him. One thing is clear. When we stubbornly act on our own desires, we will produce problems and we will produce confusion. It's at this point, as you read the text, uh, that David's conscience kicks in. From a stubborn heart, we move on to a stricken heart. Verse 10, David was conscious stricken after he had counted the fighting men and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, O Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. As soon as David gets the report from Joab, he realizes that he has made a big mistake. David probably thought he would be joyful, but instead his heart convicted him. He found that sin is never as good as it seems. And we've all been there and discovered that. Sin is never as good as it seems. And so David confesses his failure. He asks for forgiveness. Conviction tore through his heart. Conviction is one of the most amazing things about being saved to me. When I sin, it doesn't take all day for me to know that I have done wrong. As soon as the thought is finished, as soon as the deed is done, I feel the Lord's conviction on my heart. God speaks to his children and he lets them know what they have done is wrong. In John's gospel, John 16 and 8, we discover that when the Holy Spirit was to come, he would convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. His conviction is the first step in the process of drawing a wayward child back home. Conviction hurts, but we should praise the Lord for it. It is one of the great assurances of salvation that you possess. At least six times in the scriptures, we find David confessing, I have sinned. And when he confesses his sin of adultery and murder, he said, I have sinned. When he confessed his sins of numbering the people here, he said, I have greatly sinned. I have sinned greatly. David saw the enormity of what he had done. Please note that it took him nine months, nearly 10 months, before he yielded his stubborn will and heart and surrendered himself to the Lord. How often we are like that, by the way, children, friends. How many times does it take months and months for us to see what the Lord is telling us, convicting us of? What does David do? He repents in verse 10. And I believe he's forgiven, for that is what the Bible would teach us about receiving forgiveness when we confess our sins. 1 John 1 and 9 is one of the great promises of the Bible, a promise that David would know to be true. Happy is the person whose sin has been forgiven. The mark of a person after God's own heart is not perfection, 
but it's a sensitivity to sin, a willingness to seek restoration with God, even if it means facing his judgment. David has been forgiven of his sin. His fellowship with God has been restored by his confession, but he's still got to face the consequences of his sin. There's forgiveness, but there's always consequences. And we read in verse 11, that before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad, the prophet David's seer. The word of God comes, and God let David choose his punishment. I'm sure that David was like us, hoping that God would overlook our sin, but God doesn't just do that. Sin has consequences, and the more public the sin, the more necessary the consequences. And David is given three choices, three years of famine, three months of being pursued by his enemies, three days of plague. And God didn't pick these three out of a hat in case you're wondering why they've just appeared here in the text. They were named in Deuteronomy chapter 28. You can go and read that later on in God's covenant with Israel. If they disobeyed God, then they would face famine. If they would face military defeat. They would face pestilence. God says in verse 13, Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. Not much of a choice there, is there? I'm sure David wanted to say, I choose number four. None of the above. However, being a smart aleck in those kind of situations when you're already in a fair bit of trouble is never really a good idea. I discovered that many times over at school. It's never a good thing when you're already in trouble to be a smart aleck. It gets you kicked out of the French class. I'm never allowed back in for that matter, by the way. However, no, that's another story for another day. Uh, <laughs> David doesn't know what to do. Regardless of the choice David made, the people of Israel were going to suffer terribly. And David chose, verse 14, to fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. David makes the wise decision. He places the fate of Israel in the very hands of the Lord. David had experienced God's mercy. David knew God's character. He decided he would rather entrust himself to the character of God than to sinful men. Friends, may we pay attention to our stricken hearts, recognizing the Lord's conviction on us and confess our sins, seeking his forgiveness. May we have the wisdom of David to fall on the mercy of God, for his mercy is more as we sung. His mercy is great. Didn't take long for the Lord to respond to David's choice. In fact, we read in verse 15, so the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated. In these verses, we see a suffering heart now. God sends some sort of plague upon the people and 70,000 die in three days. Imagine the grief, the shock as 70,000 lives are lost, 70,000 families plunged into grief. Why? because one man committed a sin in his pride. And I believe that this passage should be a warning to each of us. You never know the outcome of your sin. You never know who and how it is going to affect other people. You might affect a few. You might affect many. Affecting one is one too many. I recently heard a preacher say, know what you sow so you won't weep when you reap. 
It has to be one of these cheesy Americans, doesn't it? Or something like that. I don't know about you, but I would much rather influence people and point them toward God than to drive them away from Him because of my sin. Here is what we need to remember. Sin always has consequences. Sometimes they affect just the sinner, but at other times they affect those around the sinner. Either way, when we sin, we can be sure that chastisement is not far behind. 70,000 die. By measure of sheer consequences, the ordering of the census represents David's worst sin, worse than his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah, which resulted in far fewer deaths. Out of David's worst comes his best, a repentance in which he confronts himself. In verse 16, suddenly, without notice, the Lord spares Jerusalem. David preferred to fall into the hand of the Lord rather than the hand of men, and now the Lord stays the hand of the angel of death. David's choice to cast himself on the mercy of God is vindicated. The Lord says, it's enough. It's enough. Why does the Lord stop short of Jerusalem? David, verse 17, saw the angel who was striking down the people and he interceded before the Lord. In fact, if you read the parallel account in 1 Chronicles 21, 16, we read that David looked up and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with sword drawn in his hand extended over Jerusalem. And then, then when he saw that, then David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell face down. David humbly fell before the Lord seeking his mercy. Back here in verse 17, we find David admitting his guilt again, accepting responsibility for his sin and not blaming others. He recognizes a pride, a price must be paid for his sin and asks that he and his family might pay it in as much as he alone is responsible. Although, of course, as we know from verse 1, the anger of the Lord didn't just burn against David. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel. David pleads, I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall upon me and my family. The repentant king was willing to bear the punishment for the entire nation. This was an incredibly selfless act. No wonder David was a man after God's own heart. He knew the sin was his fault. He accepted what the Lord had for him. It's good to remember that David never blamed the Lord or turned from him. Friends, even here, at his lowest ebb with his great sin, David has much to teach us about walking with the Lord. He confesses his sin. David could sin and he could sin big, but he could not stay in that condition. He had to find that place of repentance before the Lord. He had to get right with God and that is a lesson that we all need to get a hold of today. Yes, we will sin. And by jingo, sometimes we will sin big. When we do, our natural tendency is to try and hide that sin away and pretend that it never took place. God's way is different. God expects us to confess our sins and turn from them and deal with the consequences of them. Our God is faithful God will receive and bless the person who comes with a right heart. And so as we finish, we see that heart that is a sacrificing heart. God has uh, sent another message uh, to David. It was, uh, Gad comes with that message again. It's that man Gad. 
He was told to build an altar to the Lord with, on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Threshing floors, in case you're interested, were large areas uh, set aside for beating grain, usually located up in high ground in the open air so that the wind could purify uh, the grain of the chaff and of the dust. David doesn't need to think about this. He is ready to sacrifice to the Lord and to honor him. And so verse 19, David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. Interestingly, if you allow me just to wander for a very brief moment, this piece of ground is a special place. It's also known as Mount Moriah, the same place where Abraham had put his son Isaac on the altar. It's a place of mercy. This will be the place where Solomon puts the temple, where the altar will be. In 2 Chronicles 3, we read that Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. It was on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite, the place provided by David. This all fits together in God's plan. God works everything together for his glory and as part of his plans and purposes. Well, here uh, we find Aruna, so David coming. He goes and he bows down. Evidently, he and his sons uh, were hiding in fear after seeing the angel hover above them. Uh, we see this in the parallel account in 1 Chronicles 21. David explains he wants to buy the threshing floor so I can build an altar to the Lord, he says, that the plague on the people might stop. Aruna offers to give David the place for free and some oxen, some accessories for the burnt offering. What does David do? Does he accept those gifts? Does he make it easier for himself? No, he doesn't. David refuses. David knows that real worship is costly. He knows that getting things fixed up with the Lord carries a high price. Verse 24, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. And so he buys the threshing floor, he buys the ox, and he builds an altar, and he offers a sacrifice. And in verse 25, we discover that the Lord answered prayer in behalf of the land, and the plague on Israel was stopped. Interestingly, did you notice that David's sin was not completely dealt with until blood was shed? That's a clear teaching of the Bible. Hebrews 9 and 22 says, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Listen, it was on this same hill that Abraham had offered Isaac all those years ago. It was here that the temple was built in just a few years' time by Solomon, and it was here that 1,000 years later, Jesus Christ would hang on an old rugged cross to pay for sin once and for all. Your sin, my friend, and my sin are going to cost us big, but it's already cost God more than we could ever imagine. He offered his son. He gave his son on the cross to save us, and with that salvation comes forgiveness and cleansing. Jesus' blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins once and for all. Let's thank God for that amazing sacrifice tonight. Let's take time to recognize our sin and to pay the price of confession and repentance so that our sin is forgiven. Let's recognize our sinful hearts and let's turn in faith with repentance and with thanksgiving to our glorious Savior.
Let's pray together.